we surround ourselves with objects that mirror and project. So on one hand, the objects mirror back to us images and ideas around who we are. And provided those reflections are accurate and desirable and things that we want to feel about ourselves, then we'll keep them. They will be relevant. But as soon as those reflections actually stop being accurate or start to suggest things that we no longer feel. So maybe we've moved on in our lives or maybe our ideals have shifted slightly, whereas the products haven't. Then actually the product begins to appear somehow, I don't know, out of date or not quite as resonant as it once did. Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better. Today, we're getting better acquainted with Jonathan Chapman. And today's episode's a bit of a different format from usual, and it has a little bit of a different tone, but hopefully you'll really enjoy it. I really, really enjoyed having this conversation. So this is the full cut of an interview that I did for the Restart Project podcast, which is a show that I produce once a month, which is focused on the Restart Project, which is a social enterprise that's dedicated to changing our relationship with electronics and with gadgets. And they run Restart Parties. You can find out more about the Restart Project at therestartproject.org. You can find the Restart Project podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes and other places like that. Once a month, it's a produced show that I do, which is a kind of documentary style. And they have a weekly show on Tuesdays and Wednesdays on Resonance FM, which also goes out on the podcast feed. Okay, are you good to go then? Yeah. Okay, so first of all, what's your name and what do you do? My name is Jonathan Chapman and I'm a professor of sustainable design at the University of Brighton. I'm at the University of Brighton today to speak to you and we're in this amazing building that you were just telling me is built from waste materials. Yeah, so sustainable design activity at the university, RHQ is is this house called the Waste House, which is a it's like a detached house sitting in the heart of the university campus and the house is made from waste from the construction industry. How would you describe what you do then within this kind of department? My role as a professor here is pretty, I don't know, it's pretty mixed, but I guess, you know, I, I, I teach. I teach on a master's degree in sustainable design. I write quite a bit, uh, write books, write papers, but then I guess most professors probably do that sort of stuff. Some of my work feeds through to inform policy. And then I guess some of the other things I do is I supervise quite a lot of PhD students. But the thing that connects them all, which probably is a bit more interesting than that is is that it's all all my work regardless of, of of what it is is held together by the idea that the sustainability crisis is a is a crisis of behavior it's about people you know it's not about chimneys spewing out smoke or big old holes in the ground it's about the reasons why those things are there it's why that's why that's all happening that's the stuff i'm interested in so all my consultancy or my policy advice or my writing whatever it is teaching doesn't matter it's always about trying to peel back that kind of glossy veneer of you know product design consumption and actually see what's going on underneath and try and understand it a bit better the episode that i'm here to talk to you about that we're working on is kind of about emotional durability and also about closure those two kind of themes in relationship to how people feel about the gadgets that they own i mean do you, do you have any kind of initial thoughts around those areas yes yeah, so emotional durability is a term that i 
coined, I guess, in 2005 when I published my book, Emotionally Durable Design. So I have quite a few thoughts about, about that, uh, which I suppose is, is the idea that uh, we, we don't throw stuff away generally uh, because it's broken, you know, cracked plastic or a blown chip on a circuit board or these kinds of things. That's not really the reason why we throw so much stuff today, particularly electronic stuff. It's actually because something's broken in terms of the emotional connection we have with it. So if you like, the relationship has malfunctioned. The hardware is actually perfectly fine in the majority of cases. So emotional durability, I guess, is a... I suppose it's a technique or it's a set of strategies and approaches that help us to rethink the way we design products so that they last longer, so that they, they're not just physically more robust and repairable, but actually they hold a deeper place in the hearts and minds of the people that own and use them. So you've written a whole book about emotional durability. I guess the book can be thought of in two parts. So the first part, really asks one big question, one big horrible question, which is, why do we throw stuff away that still works? You know, and that's, that's a question that will take you into, into developmental psychology, it'll take you into anthropology, you know, the origin of material culture, why do we have stuff in the first place? It takes you into consumer studies, motivation theory, into ecology, it takes you everywhere, you know. It has uh, a really broad, what we call a broad epistemological base, which basically is a clever way of saying it draws in scholarship from pretty much everywhere. So the first part of the book basically is like a whirlwind tour of all the theories and ideas that help you understand why we chuck stuff away. And then the second part of the book says, okay, well, that's all very interesting, but what do you do about it? So the second part of the book speaks much more directly to designers, you know, product designers, fashion designers, people in crafts, jewellery, all kinds of areas, uh, and says, okay, so how do you design then? products that people are less likely to throw away people that are more likely to hold on to them and care about them for longer and so that's I suppose in a nutshell that's the journey of the book so you know in one way it explodes and blows apart the whole context of the problem helps us to see it more clearly and then it sort of puts it back together again but hopefully in a slightly new way and I suppose one thing to add to that is that you know I set out when I wrote the book I set out to to really try and speak to people interested in sustainability, you know, people who were concerned about waste and the throughput of materials and, just, you know, destruction of the biosphere as a result of uh, production and consumption. But then what happened in the end was something quite different. You know, I don't think that mission worked. I think what happened in the end was something much better, which was that the book spoke really loudly to people who weren't really interested in sustainability at all, people who were interested in value and meaning and producing meaningful stuff not meaningless rubbish, you know, spoke to those people. And actually what's quite nice is when you speak to anyone in design, you know, fashion designer, product designer, textile designer, it doesn't matter. Whoever you speak to, whether they care about the environment or not, they're all interested in creating meaningful stuff that people care about and people love. Everyone wants to do that. So the book created this really interesting backdoor to sustainability, like a sneaky way in for people, which was quite nice. Why do people love things i guess why why do people want to hold on to them well one of the key theories as to why people hold on to stuff is that they these objects these these possessions if you like they provide accurate reflections of who we are and who we believe we are who we like to think we are and who we want to be uh, and that's nothing new that's not an, anyone who's interested in consumer theory will say yeah like that's so obvious but actually to a lot of people it's not really that obvious although if you're listening to this and that's the first time you've heard it 
it will probably make sense nevertheless because it's just something we all do. We surround ourselves with objects that mirror and project. So on one hand, the objects mirror back to us images and ideas around who we are. And provided those reflections are accurate and desirable and things that we want to feel about ourselves, then we'll keep them. They will be relevant. But as soon as those reflections actually stop being accurate or start to suggest things that we no longer feel. So maybe we've moved on in our lives or maybe our ideals have shifted slightly, whereas the product haven't. Then actually the product begins to appear somehow, I don't know, out of date or not quite as resonant as it once did. So that's the sort of mirroring potential of product. And then, of course, there's the projecting potential, which is a similar thing, but it's more outward. It's more overt. So it's okay. So between me and my private material world, I've got these ideals, these goals. But in terms of what I want these things to say to those around me, often they're similar, but usually there's a few different things going on in there as well about how we try and conceal and hide uh, our insecurities behind a wall of material things. And some people refer to that as materialistic value orientation or MVO, which is an abbreviation, but it's basically just a way of saying that um, we use objects to cast us within desirable roles and to establish a, a false sense of status within large, complex groups of people. Hey, that makes a lot of sense to me. And you're right, like it, it's, it's, it's definitely something where even though I haven't really heard these like phrases, these terms before, I do instinctively, as someone hearing them new, I, I do say, yeah, that makes sense to me. I mean, I'm, I'm really interested in those, those fairly nuanced scenarios and how that all works. But then again, there's, a, there's another way of looking looking at this which which is a bit more direct and simple where you could say well another reason why people hold on to stuff and love stuff is because it's aging really well you know it ages beautifully you know look at the look at the material surface look at the the shine that's formed on the edge of that armchair you know or look at the look at the uh, the softness of this leather strap and how it feeds through the buckle didn't right. used to do that that's brilliant i love it even more now you know on the one hand there's some pretty complex psychological phenomena influencing consumption and waste and that's true but then on the other hand, there's, there's actually some pretty direct, straightforward things going on as well about, well, certain products have been designed in a way that they get better through time. They're easier to use. The more you use them, they get better. And others don't. They start to look shabby really quickly. The hairline scratch on your iPhone screen's pretty much ruined, you know. And then on the other hand, you've got a pair of handmade Grenson brogues or something like that from, from England and... Uh, you know, you want to treat them a bit rough. So what are some more examples of products that are emotionally durable? There's quite a lot of products that are almost by accident emotionally durable. There are things that, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I think things like leather bags, denim jeans, you know, classic examples of things that have been designed to fit into, you know, mass manufacturing scenarios. I mean, denim jeans fit into a category of products that are incredibly competitive, price-sensitive Occupying the fashion world, for goodness sake, and you think, how can anything be emotionally durable within a fashion context? And yet, actually, fashion is riddled with, you know, object heroes that have just somehow managed to find a place in the hearts and minds of their users. So you buy a pair of jeans and they're almost at their worst when they're new. After six months of wear, they, they no longer belong to the brand. They're yours. They're yours now. They're bulged and... Uh, ripped and slightly changed colour in response to the way you've used them. It's pretty complex. And, you know, after a party, jeans even smell a bit like the party. It's kind of some very dynamic things going on with them. I suppose on the other hand, you've got products like one of our students, Laura Bethan Wood. She designed this fantastic product that was a, a teacup. Some parts of the cup were glazed and some parts of the cup were not glazed. And uh, what happened was that as you drink tea and coffee, what originally looked like a white teacup 
gradually began to reveal this pattern, a polka dot pattern within it. You know, so the unglazed parts of the ceramic picked up the tannin in the coffee and it started to become this beautiful kind of illustration within the interior of the mug. And that's a fantastic example of emotionally durable design applied to a product. Partly because, you know, okay, you've got a product that's nice when it's new, but it gets better through use. But then on the other hand, the product's doing something, I'd say, a little bit, I don't know, political might be a bit overexcited, but it's doing something quite challenging, which is to say that aging and staining and marks, these are great things and they're inevitable. You know, everything ages, no matter what you would like to believe, everything ages. But it's funny that The way we design products, particularly smart digital products, they're incredibly vulnerable, these things, to the process of ageing. That's that's a really interesting point. Maybe if you could say a little bit more about that, about why people don't hold on to their electronics for longer. I'm sure most listeners will be familiar with the idea of obsolescence, you know, whether it's planned obsolescence or whether it's just obsolescence as almost a side effect of continually evolving technological capability. So, for you know, on the one hand, you've got a phone, you're perfectly happy with its camera, the size of its screen, but then it's very difficult to remain happy with it because now there's one that's very slightly faster, very slightly lighter and with a very slightly larger screen. And it's really easy for us to get cross and angry at people for that you know we say it's superficial what are you doing you're so unethical can't believe it but then on the other hand there is something deeply human about that where you know again as i referred to the first part of the theory trying to understand why is something in our bones almost that makes us curious about new things you know that there is something deeply human as well about the way we're drawn to novelty and we're curious about things that don't quite fit or that are that are new and fresh I suppose the the challenge is, of course, is that, you know, once upon a time, we may have been living in much smaller communities where the world was filled with mystery and mythology about why, you know, a rainbow appears and an elder will tell us that actually that rainbow represents a particular message coming from a particular person in the heavens who has now bestowed something on us for the next season. It's going to be a good year next year, you know. Whereas now we think, oh, rainbow, cool. That's what happens when you split light into different things. And life is kind of like that now, you know. I, I don't know if it's any less magical, but it's certainly more explained. And a lot of the mystery has been sort of stripped away and replaced with answers that are not up for discussion. So I think what that does is it leaves this human animal, this quite primitive human animal, in a new context where we have to find those mysteries elsewhere because that quota within us, that that hunger, is still there and it needs satisfying. So we go elsewhere looking for it. And unfortunately, we seem to have found the embrace of material products, you know, as, as, as one place to find it. But it's short-lived because the mystery doesn't stay mysterious for long. The, the empty promises made to us through a very slick Apple commercial, you know, it's, it's very attractive until you experience it for real, then it's not really so attractive anymore. But the next one probably will be, you know. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's interesting, actually, because, I mean, having seen people like fixing devices and kind of taking them apart and seeing the insides of devices it strikes me now that that's a mystery that we haven't been exploring that for me sort of going to these parties as someone who doesn't really know about taking things apart it has been an opportunity for me to see this mystical new thing and maybe maybe that's part of the answer to make things that we can see inside that haven't got this shiny gloss that sort of makes them mystical but then you can't go any further than that Gloss. I mean, I think that's that's absolutely right. Much of the complexity and mystery, yeah, of of what goes on inside things like digital cameras and 
for example, incredibly complicated things, probably more complex than a satellite in terms of what's going on inside. The processing capability alone is probably far greater. But these little things that we carry around and don't pay too much regard to, much of the complexity within these objects is concealed, you know, within the plastic shell of the object and kept far out of sight, you know. There are some quite practical reasons why this is done, you know. The role of the user has not been up to now, really, to get too involved in the mechanics and the workings of the object. It's the role of the user has been to use the object. Um, but what is quite good to see is with the emergence and rise of communities of fixers and repairers is that people are starting to get a bit more interested in what's going on inside the object. And what happens then is you realise that product designers missed a massive trick up to now where in many cases product designers have been relegated to, you know, instead of creators of worlds, we've been relegated to like packages of technology. You know, so there's this technology, it's amazing, but we just create packaging for it which makes it look like a microwave or makes it look like a camera or makes it look like a phone so people know what to do with it and you know as I say there's a, there are some very practical and also commercial reasons why that is the case but it's quite a limited approach and I think so I think you're right I think what's going on inside the product is this is un, it's an underexplored world in terms of user experience and how customers if you like can be invited to have a more meaningful and deep relationship with the stuff they acquire the second part of the book is looking at what designers can do to make things much more emotionally durable so i mean what are some of those things they can do there's a whole range of things you can do and every project that someone emails me or does with me or businesses i work with whatever i suddenly discover a new thing you can do so it's it's evolving and it's growing and that's brilliant but I think one of the obvious things which we've talked about a lot already is is to think about the process of age and how objects adapt over time Uh, most objects are designed to not adapt and change so obviously it's only a matter of time before they fall behind as the user is continually evolving and shifting in terms of what they value and what they believe in So adaption is an important thing. Adaption can relate to the material surface and the qualities of the surface, but it can also relate to things like upgrade and things that can clip apart and be modular or literally elements can be, you know, like a garment with sleeves or removable panels that can be shifted and changed. So another interesting approach with emotional durability in design is to think about how the user can actually play a more active role in the creation of the products themselves in the first place. What I don't mean there is a person operating an an injection moulding machine, for example. You know, that's, I mean, whilst that's possible, it's not really what I'm getting at. What I'm getting at is that there is potential for things, even like electronic products, to be sold in modules or in pieces, you know, kind of like Lego bricks, so that people are much more involved, I guess, in in, in customising and shaping the thing itself that what the thing does and also how it looks to a degree it's not just so that they feel placated and some superficial bond is created as a result of that because i actually think that's quite short-lived but i think what it does you know when you think about modularity and allowing things to be pieced together in the user's own way i think what that does is it begins to establish a deeper understanding within the user of how this thing works and and what does what so you know the large red square uh, that's to do with power you know, and the, the long, thin orange cylinder, that's where the memory is. So if, if you're listening to this and you can kind of almost imagine this strange kind of licorice all sorts type thing forming before your eyes, 
there's something about about that. Whereas if a person handed you a finished product that looked like that, it would probably look like some alien artifact that had been found somewhere, and it would be very difficult to relate to it or to know how it worked or what it did. But if you create this object yourself, you know, in inverted commas, then you you have a really deep understanding of what's what and why it's like that and how it works. But it also feels personal. So that to me is important in starting to establish a deeper connection between a person and a thing. It increases the likelihood of fixing and repair because when things do fail or when parts do require upgrading because you know let's face it there might just be a far more efficient processor or faster processor available in a year's time it's probably quite likely that there will be then you can exchange and upgrade but you're not exchanging and upgrading the whole product you're exchanging and upgrading that part which is quite interesting i think when we we start to think about well you know when i upgrade my phone i don't really want to upgrade the whole thing what i want is a bigger screen but the other 98 percent of it i'm happy with So it's very odd that through product and industrial design, for example, we've got ourselves into this position where the industry is kind of serving up fully formed, finished objects, which represent little moments in time that remain valid for a matter of days, and then that's it. So, you know, there's loads more possibility, I think, to, to invite people to participate and to get a bit more involved. Following on from that thought, there is a kind of overlap between the fixing movement and emotional durability and product design. There is an overlap, and and actually the overlap for me between thinking about emotionally durable design and fix and repair, the overlap is where, for me, the most impact takes place. Because, you know, on the one hand, people say, yeah, we should design products that are easy to repair when they break. And I kind of say, well, yeah, we should. We absolutely should do that. But the problem is most products available today can be repaired. You know, they they can be if you can be bothered or if you have the money in some cases or if you if you know someone who can help you to spend a week going to the places you need to go in order to fix something. They're not easy to repair but they can be repaired. So there's a huge investment of time and energy involved in fix and repair. But I don't think that's the reason why people don't do it. I think it's more that people don't care enough about the things they own to bother finding out and to bother going to a, an event to do this and you know in a way I'm probably speaking to the wrong people right now because I'm guessing the people listening to this are already engaged in restart so they're thinking that's not the case there's loads of people go to restart parties and fix things and they would be right because loads of people do but not compared to the people that don't go and so I suppose what my research does is it thinks well how can we actually design products which people develop slightly deeper connections with so that they keep them for longer But then when they do fail and they do need fixing and they do need upgrade, the people are more likely to bother to do that because they're just more personally invested in the object. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the thing. It's it's interesting at the parties, often you see old radios and things like that being the sorts of things that people really don't want to let go of because there's memories and all of those sorts of things invested in in that product. It's something that's lasted. It's got this kind of durability to it. And that's why people want to fix it. Whereas new stuff that's made now often there's no emotional reason to want to fix it i mean there's environmental reasons there's all sorts of worthy reasons but there's no actual selfish emotional reason for it that's really true no absolutely and just to add to that i think there are technical reasons why some older products are easier to to repair is often because they were assembled by people and things that have been built by people tend to be easier to take apart and repair versus things that have been built by robots and machines 
tend to be harder to take apart and repair, partly due to tolerances and the ways that they're done. So I think, you know, often we tend to see more vintage or older products at repair shops simply because they can be repaired with fairly conventional means. But then, of course, there is, as you say, the psychological side to that where people perhaps still have those older products in their lives and that they anchor them to something that matters. You know, an old radio that might have been given to you as a wedding present, for example, even though the audio quality 30 years on might be incredibly poor. And it might even only run on batteries, which, you know, potentially not the best things in the world. But the point is not that. The point is that this thing matters. This this is meaningful stuff. You know, this stuff, this this radio, it's not a radio, is it? It's a it's it's as valuable as a photo album or a a video of your kids. It anchors you in a precious moment in time and therefore we'll be repairing that thing as long as we can. So, you know, for me, with product life extension and trying to explore how to make things last longer, it's very easy to look at examples of things that we've kept, you know, love letters, a pebble from the beach that was handed to you on a special day, um, a twig that they don't even want to tell you what it means, but it means something and it's big, right? So everyone owns things like this. We all have them in little dust-covered shoeboxes under the bed, you know, and all these little secret places. Everyone's got stuff like that. But we often tend to discover that stuff almost by mistake. It's not designed to deliberately do that. You know, the notepaper of that love letter was not designed by someone saying, I'd like to create some notepaper that a person's going to keep forever. It's almost just this accident. Something happens in life. What's not so easy then is to design new products that are likely to have any kind of similar fate. It's, it's quite an interesting challenge. Yeah, that's an interesting thing, like to, to, to design something that has that kind of mystical quality. It's very hard to produce mysticism. That's something that, that happens to products sometimes, or like objects even. It's very hard indeed, and um, the, the world of products is so dull and servile. And that, that, I suppose that is to say that they're just servants. They just do what they're told products do and the idea of mysticism delivery of highly complex user experience is a very risky thing for businesses to consider you know and the norms that run through the product world about how long stuff should last it's weird because norms you know like you're listening to this now and it's normal that you're listening to it and it works but if the sound was to suddenly cut out like right now you would notice you would suddenly become aware that actually you're listening to this probably on an electronic device and that maybe that device has just failed. Whereas until the sound had cut out, that device would have been fairly invisible to you, and you probably wouldn't have even thought about it, because it was quietly doing its job, not making a fuss, you know, just there in the background. And it's just funny how our experience of everyday life is is mediated through an absolutely complex array of electronic products that just quietly chugging away in the background doing their jobs. And, and we don't tend to think about them very much. So to suddenly start talking about how a digital product could play a really strong role in your life and jumbling up your experiences of, of life and beginning to be quite prominent and, you know, sometimes disobedient even, you know. These are quite radical things to talk about in a way. It, it just does not fit with the conventional model of, of reality in terms of product design and consumption. Although, I mean, it's interesting, though, it, it, in the there's this because of where we're at now with modern technology as well i think that maybe it's moving back towards that as well because if you think of a smartphone it has literally photograph albums inside it it literally has your memory like i i had this experience of thinking i'd lost my smartphone and i searched for hours and hours and hours and you know punchline it was in my pocket all the time um, but i got out and looked in the gutters on the streets everywhere i'd walked and and 
in that moment, I was not contemplating losing a device. I was contemplating losing like my literally my mind. Like there's the, the, to, all of the to do lists that I had for the whole month. Like I, 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 I you know, my diary, every, every part of myself, it felt like in that moment was lost. And I was kind of like in this kind of moment of what do I do now? I've lost myself. Uh, and then luckily it was in my pocket and I hadn't lost myself. But it really made me aware of of how fragile my sense of self being in my phone is. But also it made me kind of it made me appreciate that device um, on a level of kind of, you know, love, emotional love, I guess. But then at the same time, that device is something which at the end of, you know, a year's contract or whatever, I get offered a an upgrade on that device. And before doing the restart project, I probably would have just taken the upgrade without thinking, without kind of even questioning it. So it's kind of an interesting catch-22, it seems like now, where we, we actually have more emotional investment in our products, but we're also encouraged to change them more often. It's, it's a paradoxical situation, isn't it? And it's, 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 it's very bizarre, very odd. But I suppose the only thing to, to add to that is that if the phone itself is the body, then the data within it is the soul. It's the kind of the spirit which is portable from one object to the next. And I think that's the only, the only thing really that makes it so easy to upgrade is that everything that's currently on your phone now will be on your new one. Don't worry. Right. So it's so the hardware, but but unfortunately, in terms of ecological and social destruction associated with the creation of these products, the soul, the data, that's not the problem. <laughs> the problem is the is the hardware and the incredibly complex materials and processes that are required in order for these things to exist. You know, in the first place, I mean, I read a a shocking statistic that has bothered me for the last ten years, really, which is that we produce uh, forty tons of waste to create one ton of electronic products. Something like that, and and that of that one ton of product, ninety eight percent are thrown away within six months of purchase. It's just absolutely mind boggling that not just that so much waste is created to produce some products, but then the products that have been made don't even last really more than a handful of months. And when you think about the social and material resources that go into bringing these things into the world, the rare exotic materials and the gold and the tantalum and the tungsten and all these things, it just beggars belief, you know, how these things are not heirloom products. How can they not be? It's very odd. And yet the things that tend to become heirloom products and last lifetimes are made from, I don't know, willow that you got from, like, down the river there. You know, it's, it's, very, it's very peculiar. It's, it's almost completely the opposite of what it ought to be. Yeah, I mean that's yeah that's another thing that the the things we have in our pockets now w- would have been like really highly valuable in the past like the kind of minerals that like the metals and all of those things they would have been you know only for royalty or the aristocracy a lot of these things and now everyone's got them in their pockets these valuable materials have become not valuable at all to us although they're very very valuable to the world you know the values we attach to these these very transient ephemeral objects is is peculiar because of Obviously, you know, when we first come into contact with a with a new phone, not everyone, there'll be some people listening to this shaking their heads because they're not drawn into this. You know, they might think, I, I don't care. I, I've got my old Nokia phone with a cracked screen, black and white. I can only phone and text on it, and I'm happy with that. I think, well, good for you. That's brilliant. Uh, I'm, <laughs> that, that is brilliant, actually. But I'm not like that. Uh, I, I am very uh, torn inside, you know, because on the one hand, I know that it's wrong and that I should remain content with what I have and not be 
drawn into this whole, you know, yes, but I do need a bigger phone or yes, but I do need a faster phone because I'm often on the move and, you know, find some way of convincing myself that actually it's, it's right that I do. And I think actually I'm just coming clean and being honest because I think a lot of people are caught up in this, this odd, I don't think it's hypocrisy, but I think there's, there's, a, there's a very strange kind of dualism going on where on the one hand we're very aware of, of what's happening and, and how we ought to try harder to have less and to be happy with what we have. Um, but then on the other hand, there's still this thing in our bones and in our blood that does make us quite interested in newness and new things, new experiences. A mate of mine thinks he's got the secret, which is that we need new experiences, not new products. So he says, if you feel that itch and suddenly Samsung are getting to you, you know, or whoever, if you feel that itch, you're like, oh, maybe, maybe I do need a new computer. If, at the moment you feel it, you should go out and meet some new people or you should go and listen to some new stories or go and do something different. Just don't get a thing, <laughs> don't buy a thing. And he reckons that won't necessarily put it off forever, but it'll delay it. And that's his way. He's interested in that. So he talks about stories and friendships and magic and mystery for real, you know, in the real sense. He says that's what you want to be consuming. That's, he says that's what will put those flames out. So, yeah, I mean, it's been fascinating talking to you today. Uh, is there anything I should have asked you that I haven't asked you about emotional durability in, in products? I guess one thing worth mentioning is just that when we talk about emotionally durable design, you know, there's, a, there's an assumption that what's being discussed is that we should design things that last forever. A phone for life, a chair for life jacket for life and you know whilst whilst that might be an interesting project that might be something interesting to think about that's not actually what i'm talking about what what i'm talking about is trying to understand how we can make things last for longer so you know some product categories it might actually be a good idea to think about heirloom you know last for three generations whereas with other categories like washing machines for example so if we're doing a project with electrolux it might be more about saying well right now you know the lifespan of this machine seven years what would it take to get it to 12? Because if you do that, you're pretty much halving all the consumption and waste associated with the creation of that product. So in a way, it's about product life optimization and thinking, well, how can we just make it last a bit longer? Because if you do that, you know, if you start looking at the percentages in terms of the reduction in ecological and social impact, it's quite significant. So obviously all of this makes sense. And you think, yeah, that sounds right. That makes sense. But how do businesses stay alive by selling 50% less kit. You know, how, how does that work? When we were talking earlier, we, we discussed, you know, we talked, what, does my, what do I do in my job? You know, what sort of things do I do? And, and some of what I do is I, I consult and I develop research with businesses. I'm lucky to work with Philips, work with Puma and work with The Body Shop and work with a, a bunch of people who are actually really interested in thinking about how we can extend the life of products in a way that reduces waste, you know, increases value, but also doesn't damage the business as a you know as a as a profitable enterprise and of course one way to think about that is seeing the product as something that's attached to services you know so upgrade points repair and maintenance points in within the product life that's an interesting thing to think about you know and there are several other strategies but one one thing that i would like to mention is is that of brand loyalty and so if we have a pair of sneakers right everyone you know, if you're listening to this imagine a pair of sneakers you know and you buy this really nice new pair of sneakers and it's ace you know this is pair it's ace if you're a business in the business of making sneakers, what you know about this is that one day that pair of sneakers is going to need replacing. One day. They're going to get worn out. They're going to need replacing, however long they last. That's what you know. But what you don't know is who the customer is going to replace their sneakers with. You know, they're going to come back and buy another pair from you. 
or are they going to go to one of the other big five sneaker makers? There were times long ago where brand loyalty was a very real thing and people did do that. But with internet shopping being as rife as it is, the way people buy and sell things now has changed radically. Brand loyalty is, is a very, you know, it's a utopian idea. It's, 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 it's just withering, withering away. What a lot of brands are actually quite worried about is not necessarily getting customers, it's keeping customers. So actually extending the life of products and allowing people to become more satisfied with the things that they own over slightly longer periods of time is a really interesting business strategy for thinking about how not only can we make stuff last longer, not only can we make stuff stuff more repairable and serviceable but what we're also doing is creating a more loyal community of customers that are more likely to come back when it is time to upgrade and replace thank you very much for your time i mean i feel like my my mind has become more emotionally durable there's things from this conversation I'll, i'll keep thinking about in the future so thank you very much you're welcome thanks So Jonathan Chapman's book is called Emotionally Durable Design. We talked a lot about it during the episode. The second edition came out last year and so it's all available to buy. Follow him on Twitter to get even better acquainted with him. He's at I am Jay Chapman. Next week, getting better acquainted, we'll go back to normal. If you found today's episode too short and you'd like to hear more from me, go over to the Stand Up Tragedy podcast where the most recent episode is my solo show, What About the Men? Mansplaining Masculinity. I'm really proud of it, and I'd really like you to have a listen to that. So check that out. Also at its website, www.mansplainingmasculinity.co.uk. You can donate to that show on that website. You can donate to this show on gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk. You can find Getting Better Acquainted on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, all of the kinds of places that podcasts hang out together on the internet. You can like the show on Facebook. You can follow it at GBA Podcast on Twitter. And I am GooseFat101 on Twitter. And remember, there are lots of ways to get better acquainted. <laughs>